Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Friday, January 20th. Tonight is a health deal finally in Canada's short-term forecast. I would like to recognize that uh, there has been uh, significant progress uh, over the last few weeks. Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos says he's very optimistic about a deal with the provinces, while a new plan from Canada's most populous province reignited a debate about private versus public care. We speak to two doctors on opposite sides of the health care debate. Then, no tank breakthrough. I have no news to share. NATO defense leaders failed to reach an agreement on sending German tanks to Ukraine. Do allies fear a proxy war? We bring in a former NATO commander. Plus, our Friday press gallery breaks down the political plays and misplays of the week. But first... As the Prime Minister has said, we are confident that we're going to get to a good place. I'm personally very optimistic and I'm looking forward to significant and positive developments in the weeks ahead. So, is a healthcare deal finally on the horizon? Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos appeared to change his tune today after suggesting earlier this week it would take a lot of work to reach a deal. And while all eyes are on the feds and the premiers to come together on a deal, a plan from Ontario sparked new debate about the way forward. Earlier this week, Premier Doug Ford released a new three-step plan to reduce surgery wait times. Over 200,000 people in Ontario are waiting for surgical procedures, according to the province. The government says its plan, which includes investing in private facilities, will cut down that backlog. The plan has been called innovative by Justin Trudeau and an attack on universal health care by Jagmeet Singh. But what do the people working in Canadian healthcare think? We're going to talk to two doctors. Our first guest is on board with Doug Ford's plan. Let's find out why. Joining me now is Dr. Brian Day. He's the medical director of Canby Surgery Centre in Vancouver. He's also a former president of the Canadian Medical Association. Hi, doctor. Thank you for making the time. Uh, it's good to have you on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Um, you say it seems counterintuitive, but Premier Ford's plan will alleviate the shortage of doctors and nurses. Can you explain how you see that plan? Well, it certainly will. And, and by the way, I don't like this private versus public because the rest of the world shows they can work together. But um, the reason it will help is that, first of all, private facilities um, are built and uh, constructed Without, pub, without taxpayer funding, they, um, they generate, if they do make a, a profit, they generate taxes for all, unlike public facilities, for all three levels of government. And they, um, they add capacity. And we know there's nothing new about what um, Premier Ford is doing because the NDP government in British Columbia started this over 30 years ago. We uh, know from experience, not from theory, that, uh, for instance, in, in the case of our clinic, we have about um, uh, close to 80 um, doc, uh, surgeons, uh, visiting surgeons, 23 of them would not be in Canada if it were not for the added operating time that we offer them. And in terms of nurses, 
if you look at the OECD data, Canada does not have a shortage of nurses. It's just that they they don't want to work in the public system because it's toxic. And for instance, in Detroit, just across the border, um, there are over a thousand in one district there in Detroit. There are over a thousand Canadian Ontario uh, nurses, and I think this will bring them back. So it will add capacity. I, how, how, explain to, to, to those people who are listening to us now, how would this um, give surgeons more operating time? Well, because right now the operating time is rationed by, by the public system. So a surgeon in orthopedics, for instance, who in BC, they, they get about five hours, six hours of operating time a week. And uh, the Orthop Canadian Orthopedic Association has stated you need at least 13 and a half hours a week, even to to maintain competence. When we started our clinic, I had progressively had my OR time in the public system cut from 22 hours a week down to five hours a week, and yet I had 400 patients waiting to get into hospital. Because of the rationed access and the rationed system that Canada operates under, and we're unique in the OECD in, in doing that, um, patients are, are perceived to consume the hospital's revenue and what, what, what the rest of the OEC does is they have them, the funds follow the patient, even public funds. Okay, okay be, be, before I let you go, Dr. Day, I want to know the biggest warning is the risk for patient safety, you know, when profit becomes a focus. What do you say to that? The data shows the exact opposite. So, for instance, um, I, 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 if you look at the data on uh, complications in the public system, they are almost 40 times that in, in, in clinics like ours. If you look at the, there are uh, hundreds, um, for every hundred admissions to a hospital, there is one um, unnecessary death in the public system. In, all, in over 80,000 patients treated at Canby at our center since 1996, we have not had one death. So this actually will save lives it will reduce complications, and it is good for the public in, in every way. And the evidence and the data show well, that. It doesn't matter what the theories say. That's the evidence. And the rest well, of the world has already learned this lesson. Well, at least uh, here in Canada, uh, Dr. Day, we're actually talking about it, which I think is a great improvement. Thank you uh, for your time, Dr. Brian Day from the Canby Surgery uh, Center in British Columbia. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. So let's get in a different perspective now. Dr. Melanie Bouchard was listening in to Dr. Day. She's a pediatric emergency doctor based in Ottawa and the chair of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Hi, Dr. Bouchard. Nice to have you in person here in studio. You listened to Dr. Day here. Um, how do you respond to what he has to say? He says that it's the contrary, that actually patient safety, uh, patients are, are actually safer if we open the system and, you know, allow for more surgical times, more doctors, more nurses. What do you have to say to, to that? It definitely doesn't match with the evidence that I've read. There's an article published in The Lancet where they looked at private for-profit clinics in the UK where the National Health Service contracted out and found that in those regions there was actually higher patient mortality. Similarly, a study published in 2002 in the Canadian Medical Association Journal compared for-profit and non-profit hospitals in the States and found all other things being equal, for-profit hospitals had higher mortality. 
And we even have homegrown examples here too in Canada. During the pandemic, we saw the worst COVID-19 infections and outcomes in long-term care facilities that had for-profit chain ownership. So I think would that not be, I'm I'm interrupting you because I'm wondering if that's just not a matter of regulating them. In other words, you want to have a for-profit? Fine. These are the standards and these are the regulations. Is that what was going on during the pandemic that we discovered? I think regulations are really important, but in my mind, why would you open up this avenue where profits and accountability to shareholders rather than patients become such a primary motivation, especially because there's other more impactful ways to target our healthcare waitlist? I think the main problem with this plan is that it's creating more places to do surgery, but not more people. We're going to be drawing from the same pool of doctors and nurses who currently work in our public hospitals. So likely the effect on wait times will be minimal at best. But they're not saying that they're not going to have, aside from that, more doctors and more nurses, right? That, 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 they're not mutually exclusive. That's not my understanding of it. But even the prime minister, uh, surprisingly, uh, seems to have changed his tune and called it innovative, right? In other words, do you think that that's where the, the, the country will be going what, how did you interpret what the Prime Minister told the Toronto Star? I was also shocked to hear it called innovative because we currently do have these private for-profit centres to varying degrees across various provinces in Canada. We actually currently have a couple examples operating in Ontario at present. So it's hardly innovative. This is tried and true before. We need to look into more novel strategies to target the current healthcare wait like time what? strain. Give me an example. If our public system is toxic, let's give resources and fund our public system appropriately. Right now, a lot of public hospitals actually have a cap on the number of surgeries yes. and procedures that they can do. Why not lift that cap, allow them to maximize the efficiency out of the operating rooms that we already have? And other efficiencies in the ways we deliver care have a lot more evidence. For example, right now, if I need surgery, my family doctor refers me to one particular surgeon. Having more centralized intake referrals, where I get referred to a group of surgeons, allows me to be seen by the surgeon with the shortest wait list. This has been evidence-based and proven to significantly reduce so, well, wait times. why aren't they already doing that? I say a lot I mean, of it, it is... It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. A lot of it is political will and the mm. lack of leadership. And we have a lot of silos in healthcare in this country right now, where people are operating individually in their individual hospitals and clinics. Creating more standalone clinics is likely going to worsen that fragmentation and siloing as much as possible. We want to make sure that these clinics are associated with existing hospitals. But one of the conditions in the federal government giving these, grant, these, these funds to the provinces is a sharing of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know... It, it's, it seems that if this is not a solution, um, there, the, this has been going on for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we should show you. This was um, Paul Martin in 2004 on an election campaign. Do we have that? Ago, uh, let me see if we can bring it up. Here it is, a, right? A uh, promising to shorten wait times. This was... In 2004, so 19 years ago. So this has been going on in Canada. It's like we have hypocritically rediscovered a debate that actually we've been having now for a few decades. So what makes you think that if it's not a shock, like a private, introducing private in our system, that anybody is going to do anything about it? 
I think that introducing more private delivery or private pay in our system highlights the worst and most inefficient aspects of it. When we compare to other countries in the world that do better on healthcare, they actually spend more of their public funding on healthcare. Right now, we have a lot of waste in the areas where people need to pay privately. So I absolutely agree. The status quo has got to go. We need to have a shock to the system. But having these more private clinics are just going to draw resources out of our existing public system. We need to have a full plan for how to organize care differently and more efficiently. Part of that is centralized referral lists. Another big part of it is multidisciplinary teams. We know that if you're waiting for an orthopedic surgeon, seeing a physiotherapist beforehand might even eliminate the need for surgery altogether. Great for patients, great for wait lists. These are where we should be diverting our attention and our funds rather than on these tired options for outsourcing to privately delivered or privately funded clinics. Such an interesting debate, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Melanie Bichard, for, for being here. And thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you so much for having me, Joyce. So coming up, Ukraine desperately wants German-built tanks to help fend off Russia's assaults. So what can Canada do to help overcome the German stalemate over tanks? Keep watching. We'll be right back. I have no news to share today on this, Vashi. The number 82 is uh, correct, and some of those are serviceable and others are not in the same uh, condition as that. And so, again, uh, we're taking this uh, and our aid to Ukraine step by step. We're engaging industry. We are examining all options. You just heard from Defense Minister Anita Anand, who is in Germany today to meet with allies to help coordinate military assistance to Ukraine. All eyes have been on Germany as pressure mounts on that country to provide Ukraine with their Leopard 2 tanks. Canada has 82 of these German-built tanks. Uh, and Canada, among other countries who have purchased these tanks from Germany, require Germany's approval to export them to Ukraine. Um, and that's a condition for anybody who buys those tanks. So, but as you hear, Minister Anand says no news to share about Canada or other countries getting that green light from Germany to send those tanks to Ukraine. Uh, you'll catch more of that interview with Minister Anand this Sunday on CTV's Question Period with Vashi Capellos. So, should countries pressure Germany to allow for those tanks to be sent to Ukraine? What's the holdup? Let's bring in retired Major General David Fraser, CTV News military analyst and former NATO commander. Hi, General. Good to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Good to be with you, Joyce. So I just start with 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 the basic question. Why Leopard tanks and how important are they for Ukraine? Well, tanks in general are really important because they are the tip of the spear. And Ukraine is trying to build a spear that it can plunge into the heart of Russia to expel it out of their country. Right now, they don't have a lot of tanks. What they do have are some old Russian tanks. And uh, what they're looking for is uh, more of a punch for the tip of the spear. But we should put it into context. The United States, and along with Canada, announced a huge package today of support that builds essentially most of the rest of the spear 
and that is including armored vehicles that the infantry drive in, artillery battalions, air defense. There's an awful lot that was given to Ukraine today. Uh, now we just have to wait to see about the tanks, and that's really a policy decision for the Germans to make, and they seem to be still contemplating on that policy decision. Absolutely. A, a policy political decision. Um, Germany saying uh, today, General, it's weighing the pros and cons. What are Germany's concern? I mean, you know, this is a country, as you said, that has given already billions of dollars to the Ukrainian war effort. So why are they why are they concerned about sending these tanks to Ukraine? Tanks are, you know, tanks, are, as I say, are the tip of the spear, but they also represent a lot of emotional aspects about what it means uh, for offensive capability. Uh, so the Germans are, you know, they've already sent martyrs. They've sent air defense equipment into uh, Ukraine. But the tanks is a different level of conversation that they seem to be struggling with right now to come to a decision on. Uh, the other thing that all of us have to consider is what is going to be the reaction of Russia to the fact of pushing in uh, tanks into Ukraine. And uh, we are playing a bit of a political chicken game with the Russians to see how far we can push them without getting them uh, going and becoming very silly. But this is uh, we've got time to do this, but this this conversation is still ongoing. So so. With all the other military aid, I'm trying to understand, you know, there has been so much military aid, uh, you know, anti-air uh, uh, stuff. It, it seems to me that for Germany, yes, it is a political decision. What kind of pressure could countries like Poland, for instance, who criticized uh, the, the, the sort of non-decision by, by Germany today, what, what can countries do? Can you just decide, listen, the tank is mine, I'm going to send it in? What happens if countries like Poland decide to just send those leopard tanks in to Ukraine? Well, they could try, but I don't think it's actually going to happen. I mean, we all abide by rules when we buy equipment, including Canada. You know, you know we bought leopard tanks. Uh, we have to abide by we cannot just send them anywhere there's a rule about that even some of the equipment that we buy from the united states you have to abide by the by the terms of the contract and all of us including poland we are all law-abiding uh countries and citizens so we're not just going to break the laws just to put ourselves into a political in jeopardy amongst ourselves and, and in courts but you know, I, I got to put it into context. I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting a war. They want tanks. But at the same time, they should acknowledge today they've got so much combat power for the infantry that actually have guns on them now that work alongside of the tanks. They have got a significant offensive capability that they will train to use properly, as Secretary of Defense said today, that will actually give them something they don't have right now, which is that punch that they will need to go after the Russians uh, probably in the spring. And uh, in the meantime, they do have tanks. In the meantime, they, they want better tanks, and that's just going to be a discussion and a decision that all nations are going to have to figure out, principally probably uh, between the United States and Germany, if they can find uh, some accommodation that we can get Germany on board. But you say that now Ukraine, for the time being anyway, because of all the announcements that were made today and the previous ones, that I can't say they're OK, but they've got 
they've got enough to defend themselves now, but they will eventually need these leopard tanks. How badly and when do they need them? You know, the announcement of air defense and that has been flowing in for a while now, the announcement, including what Canada, $400 million for one phenomenal air defense system, the Patriot systems that are going in, all the equipment that was announced today will give Ukraine a lot of capability to defend themselves and the ability to go on the offense, even with their own tanks. Ukrainians want even more. They're going to have an insatiable appetite uh, to go and fight the Russians to try to expel them from their country. Uh, but at the same time, we've got to put this into context. They have been given so much today that they are in a far better position today than they were yesterday to defend themselves and to go on the offense to a degree. The question is, how far can they go with what they've had today? And that's a matter of, of political opinion. But uh, we do still have time. And we're talking about the very, very tip of the spear. But the spear today is a lot bigger than it was yesterday. How interesting. And we will find out, in the, I guess, in the coming days, uh, what Germany eventually decides. Uh, retire Major General David Fraser, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Joyce. And our Friday strategy session digs into Trudeau's 2023 strategy ahead. We'll be right back. And welcome back. We have some breaking news for you concerning the repatriation of Canadians detained in Syria. And joining me now is CTV News, Judy Trin. Hi, Judy. Hi, you have some news for us. Uh, decision by the Ontario court. What is this decision saying? Well, Justice, uh, Justice Henry Brown of the federal court basically has said that the four men who are part, who are part of a court case, uh, dis, uh, declaring that their treatment was a breach of charter rights because they were being detained in northeastern Syria in a prison camp and they weren't being brought back by the Canadian government. That that is a breach of their charter rights and that they must be returned. This is interesting because this follows one day after uh, Global Affairs agreed to repatriate six women and 13 children. As we've reported before, I had spoken to uh, the lawyer for Jack Letts, Barbara Jackman. And Jack Letts has the, uh, he has been nicknamed in the British media as Jihadi Jack. Yes. And he is one of the four men currently in prison in Syria. Uh, Canadian officials have not heard from him uh, since 2017. He's been detained since there. So what we know now is that Jack Letts, along with three other unidentified men, will be is being ordered by a federal court judge to be repatriated, that they must be included in this group of 19 Canadians uh, who have been granted uh, a return home by government officials. What, Joyce, I can tell you right now is that the judge has ordered um, the government of Canada to make an appeal, to make a submission to Ames, which is the Kurdish authority uh, in control of those prison camps uh, for the release of those men and to set in process the motion. What the judgment does not do is set a deadline for their return. So what we have now 
is a court order. order. The government That's right. That they cannot this. treat the men any differently than, than they have treated the women and children. These six women and 13 children. That's right. Now, have these people been charged with anything yet? No, Joyce. They have not been charged with any offense. Uh, they are basically under suspicion of being, the men are under suspicion of being ISIS fighters, while the women are under suspicion of uh, being uh, brides uh, and uh, links with ISIS. The children are obviously completely innocent in this. But what it means is that there is the possibility that there is evidence that the government just has not shown us. I've been in those court sessions and I've seen no evidence presented of just how dangerous or what criminal activity uh, they have they have done. All we've seen is the a fear, a concern that they could be they could be uh, they linked to foreign fighters, yeah. and they could be involved or in radicalizers, or, exactly. Yeah, or people who have. But what it means that if there is this evidence, they will be brought back to Canada, and, and they will be presumably tried, tried here, yeah, charged and tried and prosecuted here. If indeed they have committed crimes, and I'm sure this is a story you will continue to follow, Judy Trent. Yes. Thank you so much. This You're is very, very interesting. <laughs> uh, and uh, coming up. Poilievre pulls out a seven-point polling lead. What's working for the Tory leader? And should Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shift strategies? Our Friday strategy session digs in next. Stay with PowerPlay. And welcome back. Next week, federal liberal ministers will meet for a cabinet retreat in Hamilton, Ontario. According to the prime minister's office, the retreat is set to focus on affordability and the economy, as well as advancing the government's work on climate change. This retreat comes as their supply and confidence agreement partners, the NDP, are putting pressure on the liberals to protect public health care and to make good on pledges like pharmacare while the Conservatives are leading in the polls with a seven-point lead over the Liberals. So will next week's Liberal Cabinet retreat be an important time for the Trudeau government to hit reset? Let's take this to our panel of strategists. Yes, they're here. It's Friday. Greg McAkron from Proof Strategies leans liberal. Gary Keller from Strategy Corp has a conservative perspective. And Anne McGrath is national director of the NDP. So she leans NDP. <laughs> so, um, you know, thanks all for being here. But Greg, I, I, want, I want to start with you. Because, you know, as provinces and the feds are inching, and I think inching is probably the operative word, towards a deal on those health care transfer, there's talk here in Ontario about for-profit clinics, um, you know, that could take on surgeries, um, alleviate the backlog, um, you know, with the PM calling it innovation, I, I'm going to come to you on that and later. Um, what what happens? The NDP doesn't seem to like this innovative idea of the of the of the of the um, Ontario Premier. What does Justin Trudeau do? 
caught a little bit between a rock and a hard place? Well, Anne's just spent a couple of days at the retreat the, for the NDP. Um, right now, the Prime Minister has spent the last couple of days meeting one-on-one with Cabinet Ministers. He's got through a lot of them. I think there's still a few to go. That's a good sign when you're looking at projecting ahead for a year and you kind of, you know, not asking people to do something at a, speak up at a broader Cabinet or caucus. You're, you're going to get down to the nitty-gritty. I saw that as a good sign in terms of those um, MPs have been home in their ridings and probably have, have you know, heard from constituents. And I'm not really surprised when I see the poll numbers that you ran because we saw what Christmas was like in Canada. We had a lot of bad weather. We had a lot of travel issues. I'm sure there are some people looking at their Christmas bills. So I'm not sure people are in a great mood. Um, in sure. terms of, of, of health care, um, you know, you, you're saying inching. I, I saw, look, I'm going to take a look at, you know, where we were in November when Duclos, you know, had to walk out because someone, you know, as I said last week, you know, um, pulled the trigger early on a press release saying that negotiations didn't go anywhere while they were still negotiating. So it made everybody feel that maybe the premiers, some premiers were looking to become, make this more partisan. So I think in terms of where we've come from November, it is a much more positive sign. We're not seeing premiers yelling every five seconds about having a a big first minister's meeting on this. It looks like we, we are having progress. And I'm going to be optimistic about that. So, and I want to ask you, because I, I consider sort of the NDP, the, the, the parliamentary spouse of the liberal government. Right? <laughs> so, you know, and, you know, as with the spouses, there are compromises that have to be made. Um, you know, is the for-profit clinics, if indeed this does actually become something more than just a political speak, is that a game changer for the NDP? Is that your, your, your line in the sand? Well, I mean, people ask about lines in the sand all the time. Yes. But like there, and there are a lot of negotiations that have to continue, but we have an agreement. We're proceeding with the agreement. Uh, as long as the agreement is being adhered to on both sides, uh, it, it will continue. This uh, proposal by Doug Ford and the, pre- the Prime Minister's response to it is very alarming to me. It, it, it is, first of all, it is not innovative. It is an old uh, it's an old idea that has been discredited and that won't work. Um, and, you know, we're hearing that from lots of experts. And the outcomes in these kind of privatized for-profit clinics are actually worse than the outcomes in, in the public system. I don't believe that public health care dollars should be going to line the, the, the pockets and improve the profits of very rich corporations. I don't think that's what we should be doing with our health care money. And I, don't, and, I, and I don't understand why the, the government would allow this to continue. More privatization in our uh, Medicare system is not good. It's not good for health outcomes, and it's not good for Canadians' hard-earned money. So I'm, I'm, that would be a no. <laughs> it's right. a bad idea. It's a bad idea, and it won't work. Okay, so that that that's a no. You know, Gary, I'm I'm, I'm wondering. So seven points ahead, and Mr. Kiapoliev must be, you know, kind of happy about that. Although he tells us that polls are polls, and that we don't follow polls and all that. Um, but we haven't heard him on on healthcare. We haven't really heard, you know, in this debate, which is, you know, existential right now, we agree, that has been going on for a long time because we showed our guests earlier a 2004, you know, Paul Martin, remember that guy? Paul Martin uh, on, on the campaign promising shorter wait times. 2004, that's 19 years ago, so we've been talking about this for a while. Why are we not hearing 
from Mr. Poilievre on this. Well, I think it's politics 101. He is simply watching this play out between the provinces and the premiers and Doug, Doug Ford and, and the federal liberals. And when, you know, your, your opponents are fighting each other or talking about something else, it's best to just to lean back and do the work, the day-to-day work that you need to do to rebuild confidence in your caucus and do that outreach that you're doing. Look, you know, the liberal cabinet retreat coming up, you know, they're going to need to press the reset button with, with Pierre Polyev seven points ahead because this is a government that is increasingly looking out of touch with the priorities of Canadians. Just look at the last couple of weeks over the Christmas holidays. You know, we saw Minister Mary Ng giving thousands of dollars in communications contracts to her best friend and Minister Hussein's office now caught up in a a contract scandal. And $100 million in Canadians' hard-earned tax dollars going to Dominic Barton, the best friend of the Liberal Party in McKinsey. Those are the items that are just uh, heaven-sent for Pierre Polyev when he was going to be talking about inflation, cost of living, and making government work better but, for, for but Canadians. He's, he's so not, they're going to have to hit the, the reset button. That, that's quickly. what's interesting, but he's not talking about those issues. What is he talking about? Jordan Peterson. And I'll tell you, most Canadians don't know who Jordan Peterson is. The more you learn about Jordan, Jordan Peterson and what he says, you know, women wearing makeup in the office is, you know, they're trying to attract men. This is the, the guy that Pierre, Pierre Poliver has, you know, planted a big fa- flag of defense on. He's not talking about inflation. And weirdly, he keeps pivoting to the base of the party. And, and I'm not even sure it's the base yeah, of their party a, anymore. He's got a seven-point lead on Justin Trudeau. Yeah, so, well, but, let's but, see. And, you know, if, if that trend continues, say, uh, yeah, the Liberals should absolutely be concerned. But it's not a huge amount. He's not doing well with women. He's not doing well in Quebec. So I don't know if I'd be taking a victory lap just yet if I'm the Conservatives based on one poll. It's not a victory lap, but it, it shows that he's, he's, he's got uh, a bit of a template to work with and he can, he can go out and do the work he needs to do with his caucus members. And what are you looking for? What are you looking at in this? This is going to be a three day. So it's pretty, a pretty long cabinet retreat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and as, as, as Craig said, he spoke to, you know, one on one with his, with his cabinet. What are you watching? Well, I'm watching to see if the cabinet is going to buy this idea that there's anything innovative about for-profit health care in Canada, because I, I don't, if they're in touch at all with their constituents and with stakeholders in the health field, they probably are going to have some serious concerns about that. I'm going to be looking to see if they're going to commit to actually getting some of the things. We all know that one of the issues with this government is implementation. And so I, the, I am going to be looking to see if they're going to actually make some serious moves to get things done like pharmacare, like the next stage of dental care, like the housing commitments that are all in that, uh, in that agreement. But he talked tough, uh, Mr. Mr. Singh, this week about this, this agreement, uh, the supply and confidence agreement with the Liberals, saying this is not a free ride and it's not a blank check. It absolutely is not either of those things. And, and we've been, he's been tough all the way along. He was tough in the negotiations. And he's been tough about trying to uh, force the government to do the things that are, that are in that agreement and even more. Because, for instance, when we pushed for the doubling of the GST rebate, uh, that was not in the agreement. And it was something that the Liberals had said no to and we were able to get that. And it is a, a positive benefit for millions of Canadians. Quickly, what are you looking, uh, watching well, in this well, cabinet? What, I, what I've noticed is last summer, right before the NDP caucus retreat and right now, this is what Mr. Singh is talking about. So obviously their MPs are hearing some concern from probably their supporters. What I'm looking for is that the Liberals are going to start to follow up on those same commitments. Are we going to preserve this deal? Do the NDP really want an election? Do the Conservatives really want an election right now? I'm, I'm not entirely... The Canadians really want I, an election. I, exactly. I'm, 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 I would be, you know, find that hard to believe. But also, are the provinces following
following through on the child care deal. Um, this government doesn't do a good job on, maybe I use the phrase victory lap, but for example, there were 300,000 passport applications last year. I'm told the backlog is now under 10,000. You don't hear about that. Yeah. The Liberals need to talk about what they accomplished. What are you watching for? I don't, I think I have, what, 40 seconds. Cost of living, inflation, uh, the Liberals, the good thing they have going from them, they have a track record now for, or, or some railway from now until the budget to start hammering back on those issues. So I expect them to do that. They'll want to talk about health care too and see if they can get it deal with the provinces. And I wanted to talk about space travel, yeah, but, I, but we, we don't have time, right? We don't have time <laughs> to talk about the space travel because, you know, Canada, well, we're space travel, but we can't get from Ottawa to Winnipeg. I don't get this. We're going to go out of space, but Love you to the we can't travel back. in our own country. Uh, Greg McEachern, Gary Keller, and McGrath, as usual, thank you so much. Have yourselves a lovely weekend. Thank you. Thank you. And... Uh, Power play, uh, sorry, Power play with Vashi Capellus will be coming to you live from the Liberal Cabinet Retreat that we've been talking about now in Hamilton next week. And still to come, are Ottawa and the Premiers finally close to a health deal? The Press Gallery is here to dig into that and more with their political plays and misplays of the week. Stay right here. We will be back. And welcome back. Another week in politics comes to a close with politicians signaling a health deal between the provinces in Ottawa could finally be on the horizon. So who had the political wins and misses this week? Let's bring in the press gallery. Joining me now are CTV News senior digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Ayello. She also writes the Capital Dispatch newsletter, a must-read. Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacorte. Another must read. And our special guest from Searchlight Strategy Group, Greg Weston. Nice to see you all. Happy Friday. Joyce. Um, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. You have a play. Yeah. So I'm going to give my play to Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos for how he handled the questions today from reporters about the state of this health care deal. He was smart, I think, in kind of preempting it in his opening remarks, addressing it. Here's a bit of what he had to say. As the Prime Minister has said, we are confident that we're going to get to a good place. I'm personally very optimistic and I'm looking forward to significant and positive developments in the weeks ahead. So basically, this was a play that was almost a misplay for me, you know, thinking about his more chilly response earlier this week, saying that there was still a lot of work to be done, really contradicting the prime minister. I think probably not a good week when you're uh, out of step with what your boss is saying. Um, but I think he's kind of turned it around. And clearly, he's come a long way from that drama that we saw in November when his meeting with the provincial health ministers kind of went up in smoke. Uh, and so clearly, he's been putting in work over the last couple of months. So kudos, I guess, for them to get to this point. And if he pulls this off, Joyce, if we're talking about like, what, a 10-year multi-billion dollar sustainable healthcare funding thing. That's a legacy thing that I think he's going to be able to hold on to. So that's why it's getting a play for me. Craig, what do you think? I think I've been listening to this for at least three decades. Yes, so I'm, yeah, I'm no. Gonna, I'm going to wait and, and We see. saw Paul Martin in 2004 yeah. <laughs> promising shorter wait times. That, that was great. Yeah, I'm that, outraged. That was his fix, fix for a generation, I think, if I recall yes, correctly. Yes, that's what it was. And, and that happened after yeah. a sleepover at 24 Sussex <laughs> with all the premiers. It was weird. Anyway, um, the interesting thing, what makes this so different, is the fact that um, Doug Ford can come out and actually promise changes, real changes, on the eve of this, of this big deal. 
And I think it was probably not coincidence that, you know, the prime minister and the other premiers, that the sky didn't fall uh, for the first time. This is in Ontario. We can have this discussion. Yes. And um, people aren't screaming, oh, my God, it's the end of the, you know, the... At the, least let's the, have a conversation. What Brian Mulroney it. called the sacred trust became the sacred cow, and nobody could even debate the issue. Yeah. So this is great. So this is opening it. I want to get to your play, but before your play, I think we want to listen to this. Look at the backlog. Imagine if we got rid of all the uh, clinics. Imagine if we got rid of all the independent health clinics, all 900. You think waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning would be bad. We wouldn't be able to keep up. This is going to be safe. Uh, it's going to be regulated. You're going to have the exact same doctors that are operating in the hospital, operating here. We're going to let the serious operations happen at the hospital. So, Susan, that gives way to your play. So talk to us about it. So I'm giving it to the two guys who I'm going to make a buddy movie about when, uh, <laughs> when my, uh, my career in, in journalism is over. And that's Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau, who have become these unlikely pals. And in Windsor, I went to, the, to Windsor with the Prime Minister this week. So I'm giving the play to both of them for some of the same reasons we've been talking here. And without judgment... Um, on, on whether this is good or bad, because I think we need to see. But uh, Doug Ford, for, as Greg, and, uh, for introducing it, for saying, you know, the, uh, that maybe we're going to have to have some procedures done for, for profit care. And then the Prime Minister, I asked him, why are you being so quiet about this? And he said, because I'm going to regard it as innovation. And uh, I'm not going to mess with what Doug, what Doug he said, his pal, is doing. And this is a very different Ford-Trudeau relationship than we saw yeah. um, even a year ago, yeah. you know, when they were arguing over the convoy, even. Uh, obviously, I, I, I wonder if it's a coincidence they were both in Windsor making these, uh, these sort of statements. But clearly, it was, that was the moment I realized this week we've got something in the works. So it was the foreshadowing of what I think we're all now accepting, as Rachel's been talking about, the deal. So, yeah, I would take, take us back to those three decades because this has been a conversation, Craig, that has been, you know, going on in Canada for, for, for what, two, three decades about the long wait times, about the fact that we have an aging population. None of these are surprises, right? And none of these, you know, that we, we discovered them supposedly during the pandemic. Actually, they were happening before the pandemic. The pandemic just aggravated the problem. So why is it such a difficult political thing? to fix the healthcare system. Politically, it's always been, been geared that as soon as somebody talks about um, having uh, private delivery of healthcare of any kind, suddenly it's, it's oh, you're gonna dismantle our, our public healthcare system. Yeah. There's so many things tied up in, in, in this subject, Joyce, and part of it, of course, is the, the Canadian in our uh, part of our culture, our yeah. obsession with not being American. And so the American model was held out there and, and the Canadian model. And so we never really got a, a, a decent discussion. Politically, this was just um, uh, what started out being what Brian Mulroney called a sacred trust became a sacred cow. Yeah. Like, do not touch talk that. about it. Don't yeah. touch about it. The irony is that probably, I don't know what it is, um, 
I would bet that 30 or 40 percent of our health care in this country is already delivered. It is already. It's, yeah. It has crept up. It yeah. has crept up. But sure. I want to get both of you on this. Anne McGrath, director of the NDP, said it's a line in the sand for for Mr. For, for, for Jagmeet Singh. So this, this means like a, a divorce from this parliamentary marriage that the Liberals and the NDP have, right? So what happens? I, it's an interesting, you know, the point was made, I think, before Christmas when Jagmeet Singh made a few noises about this too, is he's <clears throat> setting conditions over which things, over which Trudeau has no control. It's, Justin Trudeau can call it innovative or he can call it appalling, but there's not much he can do if Ontario decides to do this. He, Trudeau is saying, so far, uh, the Canada Health Act is not being violated. Yes. And, so, and his minister said that again today. That's right. So right. what can he do about it? So it, it's a weird thing to try to, you know... Um, set terms for that that nobody can meet. Well, and setting terms for something that's not in their deal. The confidence and supply agreement doesn't mention any sort of needing to be contingencies on not protecting public health care. Like, what is in there that the Prime Minister has to meet is the next phase of dental care, putting in this National Pharmacare plan. Those are things that the uh, NDP can hold him to account on and that the Prime Minister has agreed to respect. In that agreement, there was nothing sort of spelling out that he's got to listen to Jagmeet Singh on everything. And certainly, if this is going to be the issue that the NDP decide to blow things up on, it will be their own decision and not because of the Prime Minister, because it's in no way disrespecting the deal that they have in place. So what happens now? So they're going to, there's the cabinet retreat. I want to go really fast around the table. Is that going to be the big issue for the next three, for those three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's a cabinet retreat quickly. Is that going to be it? Or they want to talk about affordability. They want to talk about inflation. They want to talk about climate. Is it all going to be about health care? Because this is existential. I think it's, it has to be at the top of their list, and um, uh, Canadians, all the, the pollsters are all saying yeah. healthcare is right at the top of the list right now, uh, and everybody in this country either and, either is, has a, a contact with the medical system that's not working, or they know someone who who's, who, who's been. Who, who, who's you been all, you have a misplay. Yeah. What's your misplay? <laughs> I, I almost feel feel guilty about it because it's such low hanging fruit, but um, <laughs> you know. It, it's a it's another um, um, bit of Pinocchio politics out of Rachel Notley in in El, and her crowd in Alberta. You mean uh, you mean Danielle Smith? Dan, I'm sorry, Danielle Smith. Um, <laughs> the other one. The other one. Yes. Um, this is becoming almost a, a weekly thing, uh, Joyce, and, and I'm bringing it up on on this panel in particular because I'm really happy that the the media. Uh, my former colleagues in this country are staying on this and not allowing these no stretchers to to pass. This one, of course, is another uh, demonization of, of the Trudeau government for coming up supposedly with a plan to wipe out 2.7 million jobs uh, uh, and, you know, completely uh, gut the Alberta economy, blah, blah, uh, turns out to be completely nonsense. But this is one of those Trumpian things that was... Yeah. That we, I, I so sincerely, after uh, our careers in journalism, hope that uh, we never stop and yeah. say lying is okay. It's no, not. It's not okay, and we have got to go now. <laughs> so, Rachel Ayello, Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston, as usual, thanks for being here. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend. And that's your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We'll be back right here on Monday. Have a great weekend.